This week, a lecture about American churches during World War I. Professor Richard Gamble of Michigan's Hillsdale College teaches a class on American churches and religion during World War I. This was startling to people during the First World War and bringing the war right inside the church. You have the war throughout the week that, that you're filled with anxiety about, and then you come into church and you're singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. There's the flag. There are the battle flags. There's a sermon about the war. Professor Gamble also discusses how American pastors, ministers, and rabbis spoke about the Great War before and after the U.S. entered the conflict. This lecture was part of a course titled The U.S. from the Great War to the Cold War. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, good morning, everyone. And uh, we are going to wrap up one part of America's experience in the First World War by addressing explicitly the question of American religion during the war, the role of the churches during the war. Vast topic, and we will only get uh, partway through that today. For class next time, you have the readings that are more focused on social gospel clergy and uh, a response to social gospel clergy. So we won't be done with this today, but we are going to give work our way through a broad overview of the question. On the first day of class, you read Woodrow Wilson's Neutrality Proclamation from August 19, 1914 within the first two weeks or so of the war. And in that, there was a section that I said, I'm going to come back to this. And this is a section of the Neutrality Proclamation I wish I had paid closer attention to years ago. This is the sentence. Wilson, in pleading with the nation, pleading for neutrality in thought, word, and deed, said, the spirit of the nation... (laughs) in this critical matter will be determined largely by what individuals and society and those gathered in public meetings do and say, upon what newspapers and magazines contain, upon what ministers utter in their pulpits, and men proclaim as their opinions on the street. So that key phrase there, we're going to zero in on what ministers utter in their pulpits. What's striking about this original neutrality proclamation is that here, unlike what's going to happen after U.S. intervention in 1917 and on through the war itself and on through the peace process, at this point, Wilson is appealing for caution, restraint, what not to say, the passions not to stir up in the churches from the pulpit, not to divide America ethnically, religiously, since Americans have conflicting loyalties, especially if they're recent immigrants coming from many different nations at war with each other. So this is in the context of an appeal to hold back, be cautious. And that's not the case after U.S. intervention in April 1917. Then it's a question of mobilizing the churches. 
A little bit earlier, come to think of it, there was an effort to mobilize the churches for the sake of preparedness, maybe already in 1916, but much more directly in 1917. But now that question, what did ministers utter in their pulpits? I want to think through, without, without this becoming too tedious, I want to think a little bit as we go along about method today, how, how we as historians, how we do our job without getting too technical, because there are some serious obstacles here for us if we want to understand what, uh, even, even accumulate a record of what pastors, priests, rabbis said in the pulpits. Now, of course, this question of the American churches in World War I fits into a much, much broader problem, much broader question. There's nothing new about religion and war in 1914 to 1918 or 1919. Nothing new about this at all. Any ancient civilization mobilized religion for the sake of waging its wars, mobilized, made sure it was on their God's side, right, and defeated the enemy's gods. There's no way to escape the question of religious practice, uh, religious worship in those days, and the violence of warfare. It's part of that, that broader problem of human society, human existence, human conflict, But by the time you get to the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment thinking back on the so-called wars of religion of the 1600s, a common idea emerges that religion actually makes the world a more violent and dangerous place. Religion is a problem to be solved. It makes the world a more violent disordered and dangerous place. And in assessments of war, imperial wars of the 1700s, this is a common concern, that it intensifies warfare. Is that actually true? Does religion? You can can hear that I'm doing this with no nuance at all, and we're going to have to nuance this quite a bit. Does religion, just on its own, intensify warfare? Does it encourage the totalizing of war? We can think about that. We thought about this some already a little bit in the case of Woodrow Wilson. I want to return to that today. Does religion automatically get co-opted by governments for the sake of war? Does religion automatically get co-opted, taken control of by governments for the sake of justifying their wars, Uh, mobilizing manpower, material wealth, uh, continuing wars, especially if wars become controversial and unpopular. And is that all that we can really say about it? Is 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 that the story of our experience, that religion just gets co-opted? And it and it doesn't have the integrity, the institutional integrity to really Uh, defend itself in times of war. And I'm going to talk about one historian who made exactly that argument concerning America in the First World War. Without telling this whole story, and this would be be a great upper-level class, uh, maybe you can talk me into this, uh, 
the United States had wrestled, I should say even more broadly, America, pre-United States, America has always confronted the question of the role of religion, the role of the churches in its wars. You can find that in colonial America and the whole series of colonial wars. What is the role of the churches? You had local uh, pastors preaching militia sermons uh, during uh, the French and Indian War. So this is a common, a common theme, preaching from the pulpit, preaching on fast days, preaching election day sermons. This is true during the War for Independence. True during the War of 1812, there's a strong millennial uh, uh, kind of redemptive explanation given to the War of 1812 and America's uh, victory. The Mexican War and the problems of a largely Protestant nation waging war against a predominantly Catholic nation. And that comes up all the time. There's been some great books written about that. The U.S. Civil War, uh, saturated with questions of religion, questions of the role of the churches, questions of the impact of the war on the churches, question of the impact of the, war, of the churches on the war itself, and justifying the war north and south. Spanish-American War, on beyond World War I into the Second World War, and in a culturally divisive, a, a deeply culturally divisive way during the Vietnam War. I was doing quite a bit of reading about this over the summer, doing some more research and writing about American civil religion, and being reminded of the effort, especially by the American left, to mobilize the churches. They constantly said the church must have a prophetic witness. Prophetic witness when it comes to civil rights domestically and a prophetic witness when it comes to international relations and waging war in Southeast Asia. So really directed efforts, serious efforts to mobilize the clergy, mobilize congregations, to raise their consciousness about these questions. So this is... This is we can't escape this. We can't escape this. And we can also safely say that every nation at war from 1914 to 1918 also wrestled with this problem of the churches and the war. The German clergy, and there are some famous statements released by the German clergy during the war uh, justifying Germany's war aims. The Church of England, and I think we won't have time to explore this today, but think about the difference it makes to have a nation with an established church and a nation with purely voluntary religious organizations like the United States. It's going to look very different. The Russian Orthodox Church, maybe you've seen pictures of the battlefields. Maybe you've seen pictures of uh, soldiers uh, preparing for battle on the Eastern Front, and there is an Orthodox priest uh, blessing the troops, blessing uh, the weapons, blessing uh, even something like a symbolic uh, ceremonial drum for the troops. The Catholic Church in France, in Italy, in Austria, and so on. As Americans, we talk a lot about, and we debate a lot about, church and state, and we boast about our institutional, constitutional separation of church and state, first on the national level with the Bill of Rights, 
and then state by state, even those states that held on to their established churches, such as Massachusetts by the 1830s, there is no state in the United States which has an established church. There's separation from top to bottom of church and state. But what if, and I'm stealing this from a, from a smarter historian, what if we switch the question? We focus so much on the relationship between church and state in America, in our Supreme Court decisions all over the place. But what if we substitute words for church and state? What if we say religion and nation? And if you say, does America have separation of religion and nation? The answer is emphatically no. And this gets noticed by our friends in Europe when they, when they observe our inaugural inauguration ceremonies, when they hear a presidential inaugural address, they notice that our speeches, political speeches, sound like sermons, and our sermons sound like political speeches. Uh, we're really good at that, and we've been known for that for at least 200 years. So we routinely mix religion and nation. Politicians, left and right, Democrat, Republican, Independent, all quote from the Bible. You can go through the most recent inaugural addresses, as I did last semester with uh, students in American heritage. And, and every, every new president, whether it's Donald <coughs> Trump, Joe Biden, every president is quoting from the Bible. So while we affirm the institutional separation of churches from the government, while we defend freedom of worship, we mix religion and politics all the time. There is currently the really hot topic of Christian nationalism. But the more you look, the more carefully you look at the history of Christian nationalism, you find that it's not a recent development. It's not a product of right-wingers. It's been around for a long, long time. We're going to see some of that today. This is part of the controversy during the First World War. This is part of the, one of the causes of concern uh, in various denominations that, that, that uh, the government was creating, with the cooperation of other churches, was creating a Christian nationalism. Uh, was putting the churches of America totally uh, in the service of the government and its war aims and its war mobilization. So if you hear people talk about Christian nationalism and raise the alarm about it, uh, pause, stop, think. It goes way, way back in American history. And it's as much a product of the American left as it is, and this is so easy to demonstrate, as much a product of the American left as it is of the American right. So World War I, I think, makes all this obvious. I think in most cases, the real question is which religious convictions get mixed with which political agenda? Not who mixes and who doesn't. The more the better diagnostic question is which religious convictions get mixed with which political agenda. So who's, 
whose theology mixes with whose ideology? That's the question. And the rare voice, the rare voice is any pastor or church member who calls for an apolitical pulpit, the non-political pulpit. And I'm going to walk you through examples of this today. But that voice has been there. Uh, It has been heard. It was heard at the time, though muted, in every American war. And with the handout I gave you today, I'm I'm going to walk you through some of these concerns. And the problem is, the problem is, and this has been a 30-year-long, more than 30-year-long struggle for me in thinking about the First World War and religion. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Historians are, are, are blind to this, to these distinctions. I'm going I'm to show you exactly what goes wrong in the way we've tried to tell the story of religion and war. And I have to say that some of the earliest scholarship on this in the 1920s and 30s was actually driven by an animus against religion. It was driven by that conviction that religion makes the world a more dangerous, intolerant, violent place. So, of course, if we are going to, uh, uh, if, if we are going to Try to, try to work against the modern total warfare. If we say we're never, gonna, we're never going to endure something like World War I again, then, then, then those scholars are going to say, so we've got to make sure we keep religion out of this. Uh, and and there, there's a flaw. There's a flaw right at the heart of, of this scholarship. Big question here. Here's the kind of... The big question you put a star by, right? The question that's not new in World War I and doesn't go away. The question you can ask in the 21st century about domestic issues as well is, what does the church owe the government? What does the church owe the government? Specifically here, what does the church owe the nation in time of war? And you're going to have deep disagreements about that. What does the church owe uh, the nation when it comes to political issues. Just Saturday, I heard a pastor, a retired pastor, who wanted to remind all the pastors he was talking to, uh, ballot initiatives in November, you got to get out there, you got to tell your people, you got to mobilize your people. If you want brochures, I have brochures for you that you can give to your people. Whatever the merits of that, right, there's that question. What does the church owe the social political order? What does it owe the government, in this case, in time of war? Well, we've, this has come up with uh, the Justice Dunnicky book. Uh, and in, in both of his recent books, in the bibliographical essay, in which he says there is no history of religion, American religion in World War I. 
That's true. It's been a, a hundred years and counting, and we have no history, standard history. Think about all the military histories we have of World War I. Think of the economic histories we have of World War I, the political histories, the biographies. We don't have a standard comprehensive history of the question of the churches, of religion, and the First World War. And that article I sent out, if you had time to look at it, it's something I wrote about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, that's what I'm driving to in that piece. And what I said in 2010 or 2012 is still just as true, that we have never gotten busy to tell the story and to tell it well of American religion and the war. So no general history. One of the earliest... This is a really dramatic visual aid here. <laughs> One of the earliest to come out, and still the most influential, a book called Preachers Present Arms by Ray H. Abrams, a sociologist, 1933. And the book appeared to be so thorough, so deeply researched, so authoritative, that it has been quoted for 90 years now as the definitive study of religion in World War I in America. And that is really unfortunate, really unfortunate. Later, he published a new edition, an updated version of it, to include the clergy during World War II and to include the clergy during the Vietnam War. So 30-some years later, he was still focusing on this problem, this question. As a sociologist, Abrams argued, presupposed, that the institutional church had been, the word I used earlier, had been co-opted by the federal government. It had been sort of naively cooperative, complacent, and it had just allowed itself to be sucked into the war effort, which is not the story, <laughs> is not the story. But what he did here, and, it, and it's, it's a remarkable bit of research. This is way before the digital age, way before newspapers.com. This guy went through hundreds and hundreds of newspapers and drew out what the preachers had said about the meaning of the war, why we're fighting, who we are as America, who the Germans are, what's, what's the cause, what's the meaning of the war. And he piled up damning quote after damning quote. And that's easy to do. So here's my little historical method point. Right? We talk in method about what's our principle of selection and what's our principle of exclusion. Uh, you might call it cherry picking. It's easy to go out and find everything, find all the most embarrassing things that every bishop every pastor, every evangelist, every seminary professor, every religious editor, it's so easy to go out and find the most quotable of the quotable and string them all together and say, see? And because historians keep pulling this book off the shelf, and I see this happen all the time, pull it off the shelf, I look in the footnotes, and there it is, oh, Abrams, Preachers Present Arms. Like, congratulations for having such a successful book, but 
you've distorted our understanding of the war. And it, and, it, and it seems to be so hard to loosen the grip of this book. And so then you end up with quote, selective quotations from selective quotations. And that makes the problem even worse. It compounds it. And to, and to work beyond this requires an entire reconceptualizing of the whole historical research problem. Now, I don't, I don't want to uh, distort this book. Uh, there's a lot of valuable information in it, and it can lead you to other sources. Well, let, me, uh, let, let me think about a related problem here. Let's think about, uh, let's think about uh, what we would have to do. Let's think about what we would have to do if we were going to write a better book. How do we do this? If you want to steal all of this, uh, just check with me first. I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to get around to this project. Um, I badly, badly want to. Just check with me. So what, what would it take to do a better job as historians? Uh, a more nuanced portrayal, a more sensitive portrayal. How could we help make visible what historians, and I'm not even saying intentionally, what historians have made invisible. We're really good at that as historians. We can draw all these things to the surface and make everything else disappear. And we can bring things to the surface that are not truly representative, that are not truly in proportion to what everybody was saying and doing and thinking, and then somebody who reads the book says, oh, that's what... That's what Americans thought. It's my, my least favorite abstract category. It ranks right up there with the North and the South in the 1860s. Well, in the North, they thought this. And I've said this before the semester, right? Except for those who didn't. Right? So American, American Christians thought this during World War I. Except for those who didn't. Add that, mentally add that to almost every claim like this. Where would we go? Well, we would want to look at sermons. This is what Woodrow Wilson said. It matters what is uttered. Of course, you're Woodrow Wilson. You can't say said uh, or preach. It has to be uttered. Whatever is uttered in the pulpits. So you want to do that. And I'll talk about how hard that is. You would want to think about how did Christians worship? Did they worship in any different way during the war? Did they sing different songs? And there, was, there were hymns added to the hymn books during World War I uh, for the sake of war mobilization. In Britain, in America, Battle Hymn of the Republic, added to the Church of England's hymn book during the war, uh, added to the Presbyterian hymn book uh, here in the United States. So would there be patriotic songs, anthems, would there be special music that was patriotic? God bless, not God bless America yet. Hadn't been written yet. Uh, America the Beautiful. How about flags in churches? Now, this is, this is, where, this is where people get really nervous, and they think, aha, I knew you were going to do something un-American eventually. Uh, if you even raise this question... Why are there United States flags in churches? People get very nervous. Like, what are you up to? You can't be up to anything good if you even ask this question. 
well, this is really unusual 100 years ago. Really unusual when this starts happening during the First World War. Are there examples earlier? There are. There are examples during the Civil War of, of Union flags flying on top of churches and church towers. That's true. But it did not become ordinary for there to be the Star Spangled Banner at the front of a church. And it's there so often now, uh, typically, that we don't even notice it's there. Um, also on Saturday, in that same meeting I was in, I looked up and there was the American flag and the Christian flag. Some people are not familiar with the Christian flag. Uh, they're both at the front of the church. And so, you know, being the annoying historian, I think, you know, there's a history to that. There's a history of that Christian flag. That was developed by the National Council of Churches. And so I'm sitting there thinking these thoughts, being distracted. But why might that be controversial? Uh, there were battle flags brought into the church, and often ceremonies to bless the battle flags. Well, it's a, it's, if nothing else, it is a, an emblem of sovereignty, an emblem of sovereignty that this belongs to the United States. So you think about that in a worship service, right? a, a, an emblem of sovereignty and is, is the United States sovereign? Now, I know this is a complicated question, and people talk about the necessity of gratitude, thankful for the blessings of living in a free society. I know, I know. But this was startling to people during the First World War, and bringing the war right inside the church. You have the war throughout the week that, that you're filled with anxiety about, and then you come into church and you're singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. There's the flag. There are the battle flags. There's a sermon about the war. There's, I read yesterday in a newspaper, a pastor uh, during what was called Liberty Bond Sunday. There were a series of these. And the United States government provided sermon outlines and entire prepared sermons uh, for pastors to preach on these special Sundays. And there was a pastor who preached the provided sermon on, on Liberty Bond Sunday, and then at the end of the service, he publicly purchased like a $100 war bond right there. He was doing his bit, and he wanted his congregation to invest in war bonds right there at the end of the service. So this is the thing that's puzzling. And Carter, you were saying earlier, too, before class started, about it's hard to imagine this happening today. And it was in a different, little bit different context. Now, some of this, you say, yeah, it's hard to imagine this happening today. But in other ways, you think, well, this is also familiar. This is also familiar. Uh, there's a kind of what I call self-mobilization that goes on. This is what, this is what uh, the Preachers Present Arms, I think, misses, that, that it doesn't take the government pressuring the churches there was never a law passed during World War I requiring the churches to do any of this. The churches self-mobilized, and I'm dealing with that big abstraction, right? The churches. I'll refine that in a moment. The self-mobilization. Anyway, uh, lots of wartime religious books. 
Back uh, 30-some years ago, working on my dissertation on this topic, uh, I looked through publications such as Book List and Book Review Digest, and I looked at the bestseller lists for nonfiction and for fiction during the war. And it turned out that most of the nonfiction bestsellers were books about theology and the war, trying to interpret the religious meaning of the war. And even in the fiction category, H.G. Uh, Wells, science fiction uh, guru and uh, philosopher of history and Fabian socialist, he started writing novels during World War I that were much more directly uh, religious. He wrote another book called uh, God the Invisible King, and the social gospel clergy in America were just gushing about this because here is the secular, atheistic, socialist H.G. Wells. Here he is embracing faith uh, in the time of war. So there's an outpouring of books like this. If you know the technical theological language, books on theodicy, how do you reconcile? How do you justify the ways of God to man when the world is full of suffering and death and evil, how do you reconcile the presence of evil in the world with God's goodness, power, and wisdom? A flood of books, articles, seminary journals, uh, denominational journals on this question and it's especially challenging question for the more liberal and social gospel clergy who have for generations been teaching that the world is improving steadily. The world is becoming more moral and enlightened and humane and benevolent. Uh, we are learning to put aside war and conflict. We are reconciling labor and capital. The world is becoming a more peaceful and orderly place. And then you have World War I. And there are questions like, what is God doing in this, world, in this war? What is God doing? What is he trying to teach us in this war? So that's everywhere. And what I'm driving toward here is the more you spend time just, um, a student said to me once, and I love this, you got to go back. To the hist back to the history and sit down. <laughs> That's exactly what you have to do. And if you go back to World War I and you sit down and listen and think, you realize that everybody's talking about the religious significance of the war and the war's significance to religion and the church. And if you expected the kingdom of God to be right around the corner, uh, you had some explaining to do. Uh, looking at the devastation of the Western Front, the Eastern Front. There are also very practical questions of pastoral care in wartime. Think about what you would face as the minister of a congregation. Think about the young men of your congregation either enlisting or being drafted for the war. You have to provide pastoral care for that young man and for his family. A young woman who volunteers for the, for the YMCA work overseas and decides to go and help out with nursing uh, care or help out in what were called the YMC huts and serve the soldiers on the front line, giving them books, writing paper, envelopes, uh, cigarettes. Uh, they, how would you counsel 
these young people and their families going off in, uh, to what could be their death. What about the dislocations in the workforce? What about women in your congregation now going into industrial work, going to work for the cable car companies, uh, sweeping the streets in downtown? What about these social, the sense of social dislocation, the sense of, uh, of, of challenge uh, to the families? How do you do this? And how do, you, and how do you reverse this when the war is over and you try to go back to normal times? So there are those demands on pastors and other officers in the church. We have its own, the, a unique story, the story of the service of chaplains in the war. Jewish rabbis, Catholic priests, Protestant clergy of all denominations, and how are you going to divide that up? And there's a little bit of a vulgar turf battle that goes on. Like every denomination says we need representation and we need it proportionate to the size of our denominations here in the U.S. and lobbying the government, the, the Department of War, about making sure we get a certain number of clergy and the Federal Council of Churches lobbying Congress to increase the number of, of chaplains on the front. But they went into very difficult circumstances. Um, I know of one seminary professor, Princeton Seminary, who volunteered to work with the YMCA. He left his seminary career for a couple of years, and there he was, making, making vats of hot chocolate, right? not, not very glamorous, making vats of hot chocolate for uh, French and American soldiers on the field. I wish I had some good visual aids for you today. Uh, I'll try to remember to bring this to class another time, but the way religious symbolism was used by the government, used in war posters, um, I've got a great example. There's one of a oversized uh, nurse. Right. Not that she's obese, <laughs> but a larger-than-life nurse. And she's seated... And uh, she has cradled in her arms a stricken American soldier on a stretcher. And behind her is the Red Cross of the Red Cross. It's a full-color poster. And the caption at the top says, The Greatest Mother in the World. And you look at it and you think, this looks familiar. And you realize that it is a, an imitation of the Pietà. And there are, that's a whole genre of statuary. If you're familiar, perhaps, with the Michelangelo Pietà, there's a larger-than-life Mary cradling Jesus right after the descent from the cross, and it's exactly that. So using that, um, and, and that's... And it's one of those things, you look at that and you say, you know, it's like the dog tipping his head when you're talking to him and, he, and he's trying to figure out what you're saying. You just tip your head and you think, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? <laughs> and did no one notice at the time and object? And I've seen it used, a reproduction of it used recently. It was in a post office. 
appealing for fundraising for the Red Cross. And there it was again. It's like, do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? Well, how about this complicated question? We would have uh, this imaginary book. This imaginary book would not only have to look at the practice of the faith in wartime, church by church by church, but we would have to consider, if Dunnecke is right, and I think he is, that the story of American involvement in World War I is the story of Woodrow Wilson, then we would have to pay careful attention to Woodrow Wilson's own faith. Everybody mentions it, but very few go into much depth and look at the nuance. Uh, and you know I get, I get hung up on this question. Historians who say, well, he was a Presbyterian, and then that's all you need to know. Well, he's a Calvinist. That's all you need to know. So, of course, he thinks this way. Well, you've read a bit, uh, quite a bit, from Woodrow Wilson, and you know how religious, explicitly Christian or more vaguely spiritual themes, language, are woven through all of his speeches. I'm going to give you some examples of things we haven't read yet this semester. But his own faith. Yes, it's true that he was raised by a Presbyterian minister father in the South, uh, in Virginia, in North Carolina, in South Carolina, in Georgia. That's true. It's true that he was an ordained elder in the big mainline Presbyterian church. That's all true. We have to go a step farther. He was part of the very liberal, uh, sort of the Victorian sentimental liberal theology of the day. And in our next class, we will, we will look at the contrast with a much more orthodox Presbyterian whom he knew. This is what Wilson said in May of 1911. The occasion was the 400th anniversary, sorry, the 300th anniversary of the publication of the King James Version of the Bible, the 1611 so-called authorized version. He was asked to speak at, there, there were commemorations like this all over the country. And he was asked to speak, I believe it was in Denver, Colorado. These are selective quotations. I am at risk of being guilty of doing what I've complained about other people doing, picking the quotable, most quotable of the quotations and piling them up. But they do tell us something true and important about Wilson's theology. Quote, no man can sit down and withhold his hands from the warfare against wrong and get peace out of his acquiescence. The most solid and satisfying peace is that which comes from the constant spiritual warfare And there are times in the history of nations when they must take up the crude instruments of bloodshed in order to vindicate spiritual conceptions. This is 1911. For liberty is a spiritual conception. And when men take up arms to set other men free, there is something sacred and holy in the warfare. I will not cry peace as long as there is sin and wrong in the world. So much going on there. So much going on there. He's not going to cry peace while there is still sin and wrong in the world. So you might say he's not going to be crying peace uh, ever. So this is before there's a European war, before there's an expectation of a great European war. He's already connecting the nation and religion, the spiritual and the material, 
the, uh, a, a holy war, a sacred and holy war, and he's speaking about literal national wars of liberation on behalf of other peoples. This is where you have to be really careful because you want to read this backwards. You want to say, oh, this is foreshadowing, like literary foreshadowing here. He doesn't know. He doesn't know that he's going to be leading the United States into the greatest war yet in human history. All right, so that's one thing you would have to grapple with. Here's a short line, one sentence from a speech from 1914, a speech called Militant Christianity. So this is October. The war has been underway for about two months. He said, I am not fond of thinking of Christianity as the means of saving individual souls. I'm not fond of thinking of Christianity as the means of saving individual souls. Even though that's out of context, it's not atypical. He says that often. That's a, that, that marks him as part of the social gospel effort. And you recognize this, Patrick, right? This is, this is the message of the social gospel clergy. That was his circle. These were his friends and associates, One more. In 1915, he was invited to speak before the newly created Federal Council of Churches, which claimed to represent maybe 40-some million Americans, an ecumenical effort for the sake of social reform, uh, cooperation for the sake of social reform. And this is what Wilson said, and you can find this whole speech or a a reporter's account of this speech in the New York Times. 1915, he says, there is a mighty task before us and it welds us together. It is to make the United States a mighty Christian nation and to Christianize the world. My earlier claim that there's nothing new about Christian nationalism and Christian nationalism isn't the, a monopoly of the political or social right. There's Wilson saying uh, that, this, that this is the task facing the United States in 1915. And what it means to Christianize the world, that would take a lot of care, a lot of thinking and research. This is what the social gospel have been saying. It, it, has, a, it has a more earthly meaning. Uh, remember, it's not about individual salvation, has an earthly, social, structural meaning for the economy and politics and society and education. So to Christianize the world uh, would mean to transform international relations, to get rid of balance of power, as we've been talking about. All right, now, back to the problem of Ray Abrams, Preachers Present Arms, and the obstacles we would face as historians if we wanted to do a careful, careful job here. So much, so many of our World War I sources when it comes to the churches in America, so much of that choosing has already been done for us, and I don't mean by Ray Abrams in 1933. I mean in the moment you got to watch for this, and you can apply what I'm going to say to any research project you have. If the choosing has already been done before you start looking, you have to be really careful. Best example I know, the New York Times, in 
the spring of 1917. It's a primary source, and this has become more the case because the entire run of the New York Times is available digitally, searchable database that you all have free access to, free. Uh, and, and so it's easier, and we have to be pretty careful as researchers about doing the easy thing, the convenient thing, is it actually the best source for us? But let me be much more specific about the problem here. I've had students work on this over the years. I had one whole class uh, take different aspects of this problem one year, a number of years ago. So let's say I want to I wanna be smart about my research. I can't read every newspaper in America for every Sunday during the war. Right, I can't do that. So what am I going to do? I'm going to be smart. Let me predict ahead of time when newspapers would be most, most likely to report on the churches. Well, guess what? Let's think back to April 1917, when Woodrow Wilson pre- delivered his war message to Congress on April 2nd, 1917. That was a Monday. Isn't that exciting? That was a Monday. Monday of what? Monday of Holy Week. The day before was Palm Sunday. When Congress finally, both houses of Congress finally passed the war resolution, the declaration of war on Germany, it was maybe two or three o'clock in the morning on Good Friday. And and if you want some real (laughs) cringeworthy statements made, go look at the congressional record. People say, I see by the clock on the wall that it is now uh, Friday, early Friday morning, you know, the day our Lord sacrificed himself for humanity. And what a privilege it is for America to be sacrificing herself for humanity on this day. Uh, And that can be multiplied uh, many times over. So then imagine if, if you're the kind of pastor who really wants to preach on the war, you got to think about what you're going to do. You see the newspaper headlines, Friday morning, Good Friday morning, America declares war, America at war with Germany. And you think, okay, it's Easter Sunday, right? It's Easter Sunday now. What am I going to preach? So let's now imagine that you are an editor at the New York Times, and you are working on assignments for that weekend, for your reporters. Or let's say another really good place to look is the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. You're an editor there, and you're going to send your reporters out. Where are you going to send them? I caught you by surprise. I've been talking nonstop. Where are you going to send them, Carter? Send them to the churches. Which churches? So if you've got to be smart, you have just so many reporters... And you got to send them out Sunday morning. I'd send one to the cathedral. Okay. So to like St. Patrick's? Yeah. Okay. Get the You're exactly right. So you might send reporters to the most prominent churches. Big, influential, high-status churches. What else might you do, Catherine? The ones that most have the most exciting... Or the people who are the most controversial. Yes. So... A newspaper wants a quotable Sunday morning sermon. Does a newspaper want 
a traditional sermon on the resurrection. That's not, that's not news, right? <laughs> Thank you for catching that, Noah. <laughs> it's called the good news, but it's not news if, you're for the New York, if you work for the New York Times. So you want that reporter there, and, and that reporter is going to jot down the most quotable stuff and, and, and to be part of his story. And they're going to compile these together, and guess what you've got? You've got a story on Monday morning that says, look at how the churches respond to the war. And then historians keep going to that and going to that and going to that and never think. They don't go back in the history and sit down. They never think that it's distorted. And I'm not saying intentionally misleading, deceptive, it's not some conspir- con- conspiracy against the future to mislead us. It's what it was trying to achieve. So what you have no record of in the newspaper of record, what you have no record of is what perhaps just ordinary churches did on Easter Sunday. Gather. So how do you go about finding <laughs> what the ordinary right, churches talk Right, right, right. And it, assuming you don't have thousands of historians at your disposal, research assistants at your disposal, what would you do? With, now, we can take what could be a problem, like the, the convenience of a New York Times database, and now we can expand that. Something like newspapers.com, something like the uh, Library of Congress, uh, chronicling, chronic, Chronicle of America, Chronicling America, and all those newspapers, all searchable databases. And you could go, I think what you would have to do to design this well, you would have to pick a series of cities. Distribution across the country. Maybe, maybe cities that have a lot of different ethnic groups and religious denominations. But maybe not, because maybe you're trying to, I'll, I'll, if I have time, I'll come to the, to the question of the Lutherans in the Midwest and their experience of this war. Um, so you would, you, would, you would want to go to a number of different cities, geographically distributed, from a variety of denominations, and... Not the big Sundays, Easter Sunday and so on. Not the most dramatic, or or potential, where there's that potential. And, uh, but but here's a problem. And and I've had students work a little bit on this. And the results, the results show that there is another story there. That here is Pastor so-and-so at the local Lutheran church just doing the ordinary thing. Uh, ordinary, ordinary Christian worship, uh, not, not selling liberty bonds from the pulpit, not setting up recruitment tables out front uh, for enlistments, just doing, just doing church. Here's, the, here's a big challenge, and I don't have an answer for this. How do, you, how do you write a story? I think you can write it as part of a contrast to the more militant churches. How do you write a story about the ordinary? 
I've joked that I want to I want to write a children's book. Right? And the name of the children's book is "The Day Nothing Happened." <laughs> it's going to be a really exciting, really exciting children's book. Well, and you, this would be a hard sell, hard sell to a to a press and to an editor. Um, 19, America, 1917 to 1919, um, the, day, the, the years that pastors went about their business. So you would have to contextualize it as a counterbalance. But we, don't, we haven't even taken the first step as researchers to know what was typical. Was it typical? We have no answer to this. Was it typical for an American to work, walk into church on Sunday and hear a war sermon? Or was it typical to hear an ordinary sermon, something from the lectionary, an ordinary homily for that day? We have no idea. No idea. And it would be, it would be a lot of work. But I think it's important just to raise the question. Where could we go? I've mentioned this before. We could go now to denominational journals. Uh, you have one in front of you here. This is from the Presbytery, Presbyterian of the South. I want to show you, this is a story, I, I, I've said this too many times already. This story told right here in this guest editorial in July of 1917, this story is invisible in the histories of American society in World War I, American churches in World War I. This is invisible. I'm going to give you one really exciting exception to that, a brand new book that I'm going to plug, not my own. I'm going to plug a book. Uh, after a few introductory paragraphs, I'm on uh, the bottom where it says contributed, church and the government, the Reverend Wynn. He talks about what a serious time this is, about the, uh, we're concerned about not only the welfare of the church, but the welfare of our country. Now, in that uh, second column on the first page, the people of the United States as a whole believe that our cause in the present war is absolutely just, that right and duty impel us to put forth our power to the utmost to restore and preserve the liberties of mankind. You could stop there and you think, well, that sounds kind of Wilsonian. A deep heart interest thus engendered is leading the church aside from her proper mission to handle matters which should be dealt with by the people as citizens and not as members of the church. If you are a Missouri Synod Lutheran, this sounds very familiar to you. This is a Southern Presbyterian who's arguing for a kind of two-kingdom theology, or what's called in Presbyterian circles more often a doctrine of the spirituality of the church. There are certain things which the government or its people should give attention to, and there are certain things which are to be cared for by the church. And the church and the state are both strongest when they continue strictly within their respective provinces. I have, I won't go off on this tangent, I have good friends of mine who, who argue that the separation of church and state is a much more modern development, like second half of the 20th century and our jurisprudence and so on. But there are plenty of people talking about the importance, the vital importance of the institutional separation of church and state, and it's coming from 
the clergy. It's not coming from secularists saying, boy, we got to keep these two things separate because religion is so dangerous to the state. No, it's the clergy themselves, theologically very conservative clergy, who are saying these are two different things. And we, even in wartime, we better not forget the, dis- the difference. But what do we now find? Appeals are made by the government directly to the churches and their Sunday schools to observe certain days for helping the government. For example, June 3rd was appointed for Bond Sunday, Liberty Bond Sunday. Pastors were urged to preach patriotic sermons to show the people how they, would, how they could help by buying bonds and to earnestly encourage them to buy. Material was furnished from which to prepare those sermons. In addition, literature was provided for the Sunday schools and a regular program made out. Nobody has written about this. Nobody has done the archival research to go find all these sermon outlines, and I don't know if they survive. Here the schools were told about the war and what we are fighting for and asked to say whether they would stand by the president. This is a Sunday school. Stand by the president and his war measures. This looks very much not as if the camel has gotten his nose under the tent, but his whole body within the tent. The government is actually giving our ministers the subjects for their sermons, the material out of which their sermons are to be built and appointed the day for their, uh, I'm sorry, to be built and appointing the day for their delivery. Of course, all this comes in the form of a request, but with popular feelings stirred as it is, it amounts to a command. An experience shows that what is a request today becomes an order tomorrow. Moreover, the editors of some of our great religious weeklies are calling upon their pastors to become recruiting agents for the government, etc., etc. Do you see the small paragraph right after that begins one branch? I've got to stop reading this in a second. That last sentence there, isn't it time to call a halt to retrace our steps and give ourselves again to the work appointed by the master. There it is. There it is. And this entire guest editorial was reprinted in one of the leading Lutheran magazines. Uh, Thankful for somebody else other than the grumpy German Lutherans saying, this is a problem. This is a problem. David. Um, do you think that uh, there would have been more radical voices, especially in uh, the government, who would have looked down upon this, possibly even called it sedition? Yes. Um, there's In the article I sent out yesterday, if you have a chance to go look at that, um, I detail there what the treatment of the what are called the historic peace churches, the treatment of the Mennonites in particular. Uh, you can go to the Mennonite Museum in Indiana and, and, and you can learn more about the conscientious objectors. I know that's not exactly your question, and I'll come to your question. The, the government's treatment of the Jehovah's Witnesses is just shocking. They were sent to federal prison. The leaders of the Jehovah's Witnesses were rounded up in Brooklyn and convicted and sent to federal prison in Atlanta. Uh, this, it's, it's really shocking. Uh, and it was very easy. Let me stop there, retrace my steps, the way he recommends, and let you know about something called 
every state, I think except one, every state had what was called uh, a committee of defense or a council of defense. There was a national council of defense and all these state councils of defense, and there were local councils of defense. And you were, if you were a member of a council of defense, you were expected to watch and listen and report on subversive activity. One case I know of that I've read, read the accounts of in South Carolina, a man who the Red Cross came to his front door to ask for a donation, and he, you know, he's just a grumpy old man, and he, he refused to contribute to the Red Cross. He was reported to the Council of, of Defense, the state council, and the man was investigated for pro-German subversive activities. So could a pastor like this be investigated? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and that would have to be part of the larger story. Is there what kind of pressure? And what this pastor here says about the power of public opinion, the pressure, that's the kind of thing he's talking about. I mean, pastors are under enough pressure when they're shaking everybody's hand <laughs> as they go out the door on Sunday. You never mentioned this in your sermon. Why'd you talk about this? And I don't agree with your interpretation of this verse. So imagine this. You never mentioned the war. Why didn't you mention the war? Today, I've read in our denominational journal that today is Liberty Bond Sunday, or today is Victory Sunday, and you never mentioned the war. Tremendous, could be tremendous pressure there. I'm not going to turn the page in that handout, because I want to say some other things uh, before we finish today. Yeah, so how would you do this, Catherine, right? How would you find all this? You would need, this is, this is what I find so exciting about these denominational journals now being digitally available. Uh, Google Books, you've got full runs of the English language Lutheran. Those of you who study German, you could tackle the German language Lutheran papers during the war. Uh, I've mentioned in class already, I know this sounds totally uninteresting, but there's a mass circulation religious publication called the Sunday School Times. It was founded in the 1860s, and I, I think the magazine survived 100 years. Might be wrong about that, but it's a really long time. And it's evangelical, uh, it's rights against the social gospel, but in the pages of that magazine, which was a weekly magazine meant to equip Sunday school teachers to do a good job in their local churches, which is really nice because it gets you into the Sunday school. It gets you, it is so hard. We, always, we talk about the man in the, pul- in the pew, right? Man in the pulpit is a lot easier than the man in the pew to understand what he's thinking. But you can get here to what the Sunday school teachers were reading. So it's, it's fairly traditional evangelical, condemns theological liberalism and the higher criticism and uh, the social gospel. But then what do you find? You find that it's pr- printing advertisements coming from the Federal Council of Churches, the liberal Federal Council of Churches, promoting these special Sundays, um, praising Woodrow Wilson to the sky for being such a a fine Christian statesman uh, and inspiring to the nation. So that's, uh, that's, that's a really great resource and totally searchable. I think it's available through archive, uh, archive archive.org so much. And that was one, one benefit of COVID, too, how much more became digitally available. Uh, companies, whole publishers opened up their entire, uh, so many resources uh, because, of, because of COVID. 
Well, if we were to go further, there's much more I could say, but if we were to go further, uh, a, a, a complete, a fair, a proportionate survey of the churches in America would have to consider, as I mentioned, the historic peace churches, would have to look at the Jehovah's Witnesses, would have to look at the Roman Catholic Church in all of its variety, and what, what were the differences being a priest in an ethnic community in Chicago? And if it's a Polish community, they're going to have one view of the war. If it's a German community, they're going to have another view of the war. There are wonderful archives available at Catholic University in D.C., hardly touched about the Catholic, I always get the name mixed up, like War Work Council. They're all there. Uh, and that's just waiting to be tapped. The Episcopal Church, with its cultural and uh, theological ties to the Church of England, the Lutheran churches, such as uh, the very large Missouri Synod, the mainline Protestant churches, the evangelists, such as Billy Sunday, again, very quotable. And uh, as we we wrap up this class, um, here's a really encouraging sign. Uh, This is a brand-new book, uh, Ben Wetzel, published from uh, Cornell University Press. It it looks a little bit like it's going to be yet one more book, one more hand-wringing book about the toxicity of Christian nationalism, all this. This is not what this book is. Christianity, Warfare, and National Identity, 1860-1920. Chapters on Civil War, Spanish-American War, World War I. Two major chapters on World War I. One, looking at the social gospel clergy, the kind of thing I did in my own book 20 years ago. Uh, Looking at the more liberal, mainline social gospel uh, promises of national redemption, international redemption, social transformation. So he has one of those chapters, looking at leading social gospel clergy. And then the next chapter is a standalone chapter on the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. That's how I found this article from the Presbyterian Journal, the Presbyterian of the South. And he is calling for exactly what needs to be done. We, we talk a lot about those who are like the silenced voices of history and so on. Well, there are silence, other silenced voices. In the case of the study of the First World War, historians have almost totally, including me, have almost totally ignored uh, the German Lutheran Church. And that's just one example, just one example, and that could be multiplied again and again. I'm going to read you one more, not my beautiful prose, but a quotation, a block quotation, that reinforces all these points. This is from a Canadian, from a Canadian uh, who was a Methodist chaplain. It would help if I turned to the right page here. There it is. A Methodist chaplain writing in 1918 when uh, he confronted the claims about holy war. He says, that's all Tommy rot to me. Most of us here know ourselves that the fight know the know ourselves and the fight too well to presume to identify it with the cause of Jesus. 
It is true we have our orators pointing to the Union Jack, picture the British Union Jack, all the crosses, and shouting, Jehovah my banner. But most of us, for one reason or another, would prefer the Union Jack for all its crosses should be mingled less freely with the emblems of our religion. My reason is that it lowers the standard of Jesus. Yet I believe it is every Christian's duty and privilege to contribute to the winning of this war, not as a Christian, but as a citizen of our warring country, not presuming to identify, in our case, that which is Caesar's which, with that which is Christ's. And with that, we'll end. I'll see you on Thursday. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out Season 2 of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.